Turbo being late. Hey, it's uh, Tom with Forging Ahead, and I've got Dave Cairns with me today. And uh, Dave, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself however you want to be introduced? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. Um, and I love what you're doing. And I admire that you're, you're, you're out there and you're creating a podcast and you're talking to industry professionals like me that are kind of auxiliary to your business line. So I really appreciate being here. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So what do I do? Uh, I work at CBRE. We're the commercial, we're the largest commercial real estate service firm in the world. We are probably 80,000 employees in more than 80 countries. And we service anything you could possibly imagine when it comes to a real estate transaction, either for lease or for the purposes of, you know, buying or disposing uh, of commercial real estate. I'm focused on office leasing. So I'm somebody who helps when, you know, you need to rent an office space, basically. Either you're going to be renewing, you're going to be growing in your headcount, you're going to be shrinking in your headcount, or you might want to enter a new marketplace. I get involved on the transaction side, help you source space and negotiate terms. And then I kind of act like a conduit to the broader CBRE service platform. Sometimes people need help better understanding what their future workplace might need to look like. So that's some sort of work that we do in advance of getting to the transaction stage. And then other times people need help with uh, fulfilling the project, you know, construction, project management, design, furniture. I don't do that stuff, but I'm a great conduit to uh, other professionals that can help with that. Type of thing. Cool. Um, and you cover downtown Toronto? Yeah, that's a, a, a relevant question. Um, so the, I should have mentioned this. The practice that I have is um, it's very multifaceted. So I work on the landlord side, helping uh, landlords lease up vacancy or renew existing leases. I also work with local um, Toronto-based businesses. We call that like tenant rep brokerage. Mm-hmm. And I also work in a capacity of being sort of like a single point of contact for uh, companies that need to deal with office space across multiple markets. So really, I, along with my team of about eight people, cover every area of of servicing office leasing. Got it. Um, I guess, do you want to tell us, give us like a a high level on what's happening in Toronto right now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So Toronto is one of the most dynamic office leasing markets in the world. Uh, Our vacancy rate in the downtown core is currently below 2%, which puts us at actually the lowest office vacancy in North America. And I would have to imagine that that puts us top one, two or three in the world. So it's a market of, it's an incredible success story. The fact that there's such a low vacancy is indicative of all the amazing growth in our city. You know, a lot of it actually being driven by large U.S. enterprises um, expanding upon their presence in key Canadian cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. Uh, and then also a really, really robust and healthy innovation ecosystem where there's a lot of really amazing startup companies that are going from startup to scale up. Um, so that's, I think, one of the, that's the exciting reason why the vacancy is so low, um, but it creates quite a bit of scarcity uh, when you're out there looking for space. And if you're a growing technology firm, you know, that, that just raised a series A, B or whatever, and, you know, you need to go from 50 people to 100, it can be very, very challenging um, to find office space, especially turnkey office space, uh, which, you know, in the case of those types of companies, that's what they're after. Um, so, yeah, it's a, 
really cool market to be in. I've been doing this now for seven years as an agent, eight years at CBRE. And I've just seen the vacancy go down and the activity go up the entire way along. Um, it's going to be interesting the next couple of years, what starts to unfold. Uh, we, we have about 10 million square feet of office space that has shovels in the ground. Um, so it's, 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 you know, pretty much 100% leased by larger enterprises. And, um, you know, some of that's growth, but a lot of it's consolidation. You know, you look at a, a company like CIBC, one of Canada's largest banks, um, they're going to be consolidating probably 15 or 20 locations into one complex that will house um, almost 2 million square feet for them. So as time goes on, there's going to be some space that comes back to the market. Uh, frankly, we need it. And it'll just be interesting to see what happens in the next few years, whether the market opens up a little bit uh, from here. Got it. Um, I took a brief lap through your LinkedIn profile, but why don't you yeah. take us through your your path and how you ended up here? Sure. Uh, it's a it's an interesting one. Uh, at least I think so. Um, so I, I grew up in Toronto, went to school in Toronto, eventually uh, went to McGill University. And um, while I was in high school, I kind of got hooked on the poker boom that was occurring all around me. So this was um, in sort of 2005 and 2006. Um, for anyone who's listening who knows a little bit about poker, you don't have to know too much to know that in 2003, a guy named Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. And what was interesting about this particular guy winning the World Series of Poker was that, first of all, he was an amateur player. He had a really interesting and catchy name, Moneymaker. And he was the first ever player to have qualified through a satellite tournament online. So effectively what he did is he put up $30 and he entered like another tournament that got him to like $200. And eventually it, it brought him to winning a seat in the main event for $10,000. So he, he turned 10, actually turned $30 into uh, 10,000 and then turned it into 2.5 million. So it created this boom in poker and, and a lot of my friends were, were interested in it at the time. Um, so at the, start, at the start, we were just playing games for fun, you know, around, around the kitchen table. I happened to be someone who was a lot more enthralled by it. I think partly because I had just kind of, my, my career as a, a competitive ski racer was kind of on the downward slide. And uh, poker for me really kind of filled that void of, um, you know, that, that competitive pursuit that I had had. Um, so while a lot of my friends just kind of were interested in like for fun, uh, when they started to not really care so much anymore, I, I was getting to the age where I eventually went to university and, uh, you know, I started to take up playing online relatively seriously, I guess, over the course of my university career and um, sparing some of the details by the end of uh, university. I guess I'll give you one detail. In my, in my final year of university, a friend of mine and I, we agreed that we would split action on our respective accounts. Right. So I'd play on mine. He'd play on his. We would each enter the exact same poker tournaments. And whoever won any money, we would just share in the in the upside 50-50. So that was in my fourth year of university. And we won a tournament that had about 8,300 players in it. And um, it was for 216K US in, in Canadian dollars. That was like 280. Wow. So um, I kind of walked out of university with enough money in my pocket that I didn't have to go down a conventional road in life. Um, I actually went to the World Series of Poker that summer. And I got sobered up pretty fast because although I did have a few hundred grand, 
you know, I was used to playing and buying, you know, a $200 buy-in was a high buy-in for me playing online, right? And it's kind of an inverse correlation. Online, you would be playing lower buy-ins and a lot more volume. And in person, you'd be playing higher buy-ins and a lot less volume. So the volatility in, in person is significantly higher than what you can do online. So you, effectively, you can mitigate your risk, minimize the luck factor a lot easier online. In person, it could take you a decade to actualize your true ROI. Um, it's just, just because of how much, how, how much less volume you can play. But anyway, I went down there and quickly lost like 20 grand, which was like 10% of my role at the time. And I, I just got sobered being like, whoa, like this is kind of dangerous. I could go broke real fast. Um, and I kind of told myself after I left Vegas that summer, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to find a way to do it in a more sustainable fashion. And I actually went away traveling with a buddy of mine uh, for like four months. And in that time, I ended up, um, I just thought I'd take a break for a bit. And, and in that time, eventually near the end, I found a guy through a mutual friend who lived in Vancouver who was like a self-made millionaire from playing poker. Um, and he ended up, he and I ended up coming up with an arrangement where he backed me. And so he would put me into all of the higher buy-in tournaments that I wanted to play that I, I didn't have the bankroll for. Uh, so I, I was playing under his uh, purview for three years uh, with him. And I was playing online high stakes and, and also in person at a lot of places around the world up to $10,000 buy-ins. So that was kind of my life from 20 until 25. Um, and then around the time I was 25, the Department of Justice in the US indicted the two biggest online poker websites for tax evasion, money laundering, and wire fraud, a whole host of other charges. And um, I, I always thought I'd get out of poker probably no later than 30, because I kind of thought it's a cool thing to do for a while, but eventually like, the story will probably be not as interesting to an employer. And, you know, it, 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 I might remove myself so much from society that I won't be able to function. That was kind of like my lucky self-awareness. Um, but that stuff happening at the age of 25, we, we called that day Black Friday when when the DOJ indicted Poker Stars in full tilt. Um, that just set me on a different path quicker. Because um, to give you some context, I, I was playing tournaments for a living. And... Um, if, if a daily tournament would have paid $20,000 to first place pre-Black Friday, post-Black Friday, it was about 5000 So some of the prize pools were chopped by like 75%. And a lot of the bad players were coming from the U.S. So it just really changed my trajectory kind of quicker than I had thought. So what was, uh, I guess, for a second. <laughs> yeah, one poker question. Just um, the difference between sitting behind a machine and playing versus being able to look into people's eyes, like is, is playing online like straight math and then you don't have as much of the like competitive against the person element. And this is, it could be the yeah. worst question ever. I don't know anything uh, about it. So. It's a fair question. Um, so what I would say is that you have more, it's interesting. You actually, you have more um, human data to draw upon in person uh, but online, you can actually get a lot of raw data on your opponents. So online, you could know things like how frequently is somebody raising before any of the cards come out? How frequently are they re-raising somebody before the cards come out? When the cards come out, the first three, the flop, you know, how often are they doing what we call a continuation bet? You can, you can derive some really meaningful statistics online. 
which effectively allow you to categorize a player into, you know, whether they're like, you know, tight and aggressive, loose and aggressive, a complete cannon and a total fish. Like you can start to like make these assessments based on that data. Um, and actually uh, online, you can even pick up on timing a little bit more than you'd think. You know, even though decisions are being made in, you know, a lot of like 30 second intervals, if someone's normally making decisions in like five second intervals and all of a sudden they're taking 30 seconds to make a decision, well, what what's the reason for that, right? Like what can you discern based on what you know from them in, in previous instances? So that's kind of the online side. And then in person, you can just, you know, you can use speech play a lot more. Like I remember I was, I actually played a tournament last February. I don't play much anymore, but I was playing a live tournament in person. And um, the board, I had, a, I had a king nine in my hand and the board came out with a king on the flop. Um, but I didn't have a strong kicker, you know, like a nine is not a very strong kicker. An ace would have been a lot better of a kicker um, for my king. So I, this woman that I was playing against, she's, she's very prone to, to like betting and, and, and just kind of going crazy. So I looked at her and I, I, when the king came out and I noticed she was interested in it, I said to her, I said, do you want to go broke on this hand? You know what I mean? And and really what I was trying to actually do was get her to slow down. Like I, I wanted to try and get a cheap showdown um, and not have to risk a lot of my chips. And that, that, that tactic was actually very effective. It worked in that situation. So like those are the kind of things you can do in person that obviously you can't do online. Got it. So you're 25, I guess, pull us to how you ended up in commercial real estate. Yeah. Um, so when I got out of poker, I did take a job for a very short period of time in like a bucket shop sales environment with a bunch of my friends from university. I thought that was a wise thing to do just because I had no real experience and I kind of needed to like transition myself into a real human being because I was living on the outskirts of society for like five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did that for a very short time. I actually kind of got smoked out of that place because I was uh, talking to the fact that I, I didn't know how to like be in corporate world the company I was working for just was telling a whole bunch of lies and I just really didn't believe in selling the products and services that they had. So um, I started kind of blowing the whistle and, and they punted me from that organization for blowing the whistle. So I was kind of back at the drawing board after like four months of being in the real world. And it was actually really kind of soul crushing for me at the time. Like I, I was in a true identity crisis, right? Like I didn't really know how to define myself. I'd been a poker player for five years. And now I was trying to figure out who am I next. Um, so while I was at Career Builder, that was the name of the company. Uh, sorry, guys, you were, if you're listening, <laughs> you were telling some fibs back then. Um, uh, I was uh, introduced through my dad, actually, uh, who was in the commercial real estate space. He connected me to some CEOs of the big brokerage firms um, saying, hey, you should try and sell your products and services to them. Um, so I, I had the good fortune through that connection to be able to um, meet like, you know, the, the CEO of Seabury Canada, CEO of uh, Cushman and Wakefield Canada, JLL. Um, and I, I guess I had the foresight at the time while I was working at Career Builder not to sell them these products and services, but rather just, you know, wonder what that relationship might do for me at a later date. So when I got out of this job, I started to kind of like think about it and I'm like, okay. I know a little bit about real estate just through osmosis or, you know, like paying attention to my dad when I was a kid, not that I was paying too much attention to him, but uh, you know, whatever, being a kid, I I knew enough about it. 
Uh, and I started to ask him a few more questions and he sort of said, well, you know, it's a, it's an industry where there's not a ceiling really on what kind of money you can make. You know, some of the best people out there make millions of dollars and, um, you know, you can kind of chart your own course and it's hundred percent commissioned. And some people are scared of that, but you might like it, you know, cause you were a poker player and you're kind of used to not only not making money on a given day, but you're used to losing money on, on a lot of those days. So it was those factors, I think, that made me say to myself, maybe I'll just take a leap of faith because I, I got to take some kind of leap of faith, you know. Um, so I just started interviewing at the various brokerages and um, CBRE was actually the hardest one to crack. Um, they just don't hire very quickly, uh, which actually is a good thing. Um, but I really, really wanted to work there because I feel we have the best platform. That was what I felt with like limited experience. And, and now having been there for eight years, it's just like so obvious it's the best place to work uh, but it was tough actually I, I got offered a couple jobs some of them were in the suburban markets um, I think that there was a more challenges getting the brokerages were having a harder time getting young people to go and work in our suburban markets for obvious reasons they were kind of suffering and the, the, the story of urbanization was really taking effect in like 2011 2012 um, I just pushed to work in in the downtown market and I, I luckily finally broke through at CBRE and uh, I did a year in what we call our sales training program, where you're you're basically an administrative assistant, or brackets bitch, um, to uh, to sales professionals like me. Um, but it was really the most amazing experience for me because one, I got to slowly and incrementally like in- reintroduce myself into society, which frankly I needed, mm-hmm. and uh, I got two other really important benefits. I got to learn the Toronto market slowly. You know, because a lot of brokers get thrown right into sales and they don't even know where all the buildings are and they don't know who owns them and they don't know anything about where rents are trending and concession, all the stuff you got to know, right? You just kind of get thrown into it and you're expected to talk about it. Um, so I got the benefit of learning that through our sales training program by supporting the people that do what I do now. Uh, and then I also got the chance to meet all the brokers on the floor and forge a relationship with a really amazing guy who's now been my partner for the last uh, seven years. We're now 50-50 partners and we've grown a two-person team to an eight-person team, uh, which you know might seem small in, in the context of most companies, but as a commercial real estate brokerage team, it's, it's massive. Um, so yeah, I, I just love that I got that incremental ability to grow my career at CBRE that way. And um, it's just set me up for success. And, and now we're, we're one of the top office leasing teams in the country. Can you take me through how like a, a practice like yours gets spun up inside of a, a group like CBRE? I'm not sure I fully yeah. understand how you guys are set up. Sure, sure. Um, so um, most brokers on, in our company uh, function in, in a team-like environment. Um, so it would be uncommon to see someone be like a lone ranger but the team sizes usually don't get to the order of magnitude of eight. They're more like two to three person teams. And those two to three person teams might share in uh, administrative support with another team of a similar size. That's usually how it works. Um, My partner and I really actually wanted to model the top team in our country, which actually happens to be an investment sales team. And uh, on their team, they've got, um, you know, sort of the patriarch uh, or you know, not to make it about like a, a male oriented thing, but whatever, you've got the person at the top uh, who manages the the business as a whole and all those, all the relationships as a whole. But then there's a vertical expert for each uh, asset type that they cover. So they've got retail, office, industrial, uh, 
um, and you know, and a couple of others. Um, so, so we can't do that in office leasing because we're, we're we're only specialists in one discipline, not in office, industrial, retail, industrial, you know, whatever. Um, but we wanted to look to that team as an example and and find a way to build a true machine. Um, so we started by first hiring a transaction manager, somebody that could take care of a lot of the day-to-day aspects of negotiating deals that take brokers away from being able to prospect for new relationships and maintain existing ones and follow up with the ones that you did deals with like two, three, four years ago that you want to make sure that you don't lose to another broker, right? So that was our first hire. We knew that that hire would be critical. Um, we, we always had someone in the administrative on the administrative side of things from the beginning that was helping with you know the preparation of marketing materials, setting up tours, all that kind of stuff. But the, the key critical hire to, to scale was that a transaction manager. Um, then after we hired the transaction manager, our journey took a really interesting turn. Um, we started to get involved with sponsoring um, two key um, organizations. One of them is called 111, which is a Toronto-based innovation hub. You can think of them like a co-working space, but they're very curated um, in terms of who they allow in. So they um, they only really allow software companies that you know have done a million in revenue or raised five million or more in funding. Uh, and the idea being that they they can share in that journey together. So we started by sponsoring 111, which then in turn led us to meeting another sponsor of 111, Deloitte. And Deloitte then got us involved in their Technology Fast 50 Awards program, which is a program where you got the opportunity to meet every single technology company basically across Canada that applied to that program every year, trying to win one of the various awards that were associated with the Fast 50 program. So these were real like differentiating partnerships that we formed. And out of forming those partnerships, we ended up creating our own platform to effectively act as a PR or marketing firm to generate leads. And we called that platform CBRE Forward. Uh, The intention behind it being we wanted to showcase the most forward thinking companies in Canada, tell their stories, leveraging the Fortune 100 brand of CBRE. So because we created this platform and it was tapped into these amazing prospecting networks that we had, um, it ended up necessitating hiring somebody to actually run the CBRE Forward platform and run the Deloitte Fast 50 awards program prospecting effort across Canada. So that actually ended up being our next hire, a person to run that platform. So that's a really unique role. It's, It's probably unique to the industry to have someone on a brokerage team that's that's focused on doing something like that. Um, so that was our next hire. And then we ended up bringing on uh, two more sales professionals that are starting out in an in a entry-level capacity. They're both 23. And then the person who was our transaction manager said, hey, I want to get into sales. Can you support me in doing that? And we said, yeah, absolutely. So she's now moved into sales and we've replaced her with another transaction manager. So today our team looks like five sales professionals, my partner and I being the ones who run the team. We're 50-50 partners. uh, And the other three sales professionals are starting to grow their equity position on our team. Then we have a transaction manager. We've got our CBRA forward person and uh, another person that supports our transaction management and also our marketing function. Cool. Yeah, kind of. I feel like I mean, I, like it's a lot. It's a mouthful, but you know, that's that's what it is, and that's how we got there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's really logical and makes good sense. Um, so just to touch on something that you brought up, because I think that you are somewhat, um, like at the tip of the spear of some of this stuff, but prospecting and relationship management. And if you can figure out a way to talk about, you know, what you're doing on LinkedIn and social, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so I, get bored very easily. (laughs) Um, I, I, I find it hard to just do my job, like, you know, pump out the transactions. And that's part of the reason why Seabury forward came to be. I was always looking for ways to make more meaningful and more intimate connections with our prospect base. And when I say intimate, like I don't mean intimate in the way you might think. I just mean getting deeper with that client relationship and having you be really memorable and perceived to be super valuable. So that's how I got involved with the whole Seabury Forward thing. And then as I was getting involved in that, I started to pay more attention to what was going on on LinkedIn. And this is probably roughly two years ago, I started to monitor it. I wish I'd gotten on it sooner. Um, But uh, I just started to notice that there was really like this blue ocean of opportunity on LinkedIn where you could get like so much reach for free. Uh, like as long as you just put out something that was like half decent, you were going to like get a lot of attention. And then I looked around in my industry and I'm like, nobody is actually doing at first. No one, literally no one was doing anything. Like two years ago, not a soul in commercial real estate was was making any push to put out content on LinkedIn. But then as I'm watching even further, six, 12 months as time goes on, people are just getting into like a whole brag fest on LinkedIn and commercial real estate, right? They're like, just lease this space. like just sold this building. Like, I'm so great. I'm so great. And I'm thinking like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like I just thought of it like logically, I'm like, I'm looking at this and like, I get no value from that. So why do I care? Right. And so I I took that as an example of what I didn't want to do. And I started to watch a lot of what the people in other sectors were doing, which was just completely focused around entertainment and value add content. Right. Uh, you could look at like Brian Burns, who does the brutal truth of sales and selling. You could look at Gary Vee. You could you could point to uh, like Shay Rowbottom. You could point to a million different people in there that are just totally outwardly focused on trying to put content out that is all about solving people's problems. So I decided to take a leap and start doing. At first, I was doing mostly written content, and then probably almost a year ago, I decided, you know what, like, I'm going to go out into the wild and start making videos on LinkedIn about problems that my customers face uh, in office leasing. And so I've been doing that now for, yeah, like I said, almost a year. It's tough to keep up with, um, like running a business and finding a way to like keep a consistent social media strategy going. Um, Maria, who runs our Seabury Forward platform, she really helps me with this. Um, But it's been so incredibly differentiating for me to be able to do that. And it's been really rewarding, too, because, you know, the kind of feedback that I'm getting from my clients is awesome. Like, they're just really happy to see me going out there and talking about things in a digestible way that are short and, you know, to the point that are about the, the challenges that they face. Yeah, I mean, I think you're dead on. It's um, just in like the Boston. I know I spend a lot of time with um, brokers in Boston and I'm constantly trying to like poke them to do stuff. And it's like 
most of what I see is like a reshare of the corporate page sharing like a market report with none of yeah. their commentary. I'm like, what am I, what am I going to do with that? No, like if I'm somebody sure. who's going to try to open an office in the next two years, that doesn't help me at all. No, um, I know. So I think, I think you're, uh, you're dead on there. The, something that you mentioned that I think is, is hard for brokers is, you know, being memorable, being valuable and being different. Can you riff on that a little bit, like in one level of detail more than, you know, just saying that, like, what are some of the tactics or habits or things that you're trying yeah. to do to be more than somebody that can, you know, pull a report from CoStar and tour space? Like that's kind yeah. of like the table stakes, right? Yeah, totally. Um, so the, yeah, it's the hardest thing that we go up against. Well, I'll start by saying the best part about what we do is that all, you don't really have to qualify whether someone needs your services. It's actually just a question of when they need your services. So that's kind of awesome because you don't have to like get on these pre-qualifying calls, right? Mm-hmm. But the challenge is the chase. The challenge is building up value over a prolonged period of time when they're being inundated by people that are all trying to do the exact same thing at a point in time when they have no need, right? So that is a really dynamic and challenging thing to do. And then once you've actually gotten the client, done the deal, there's a really long time frame in a lot of cases before you're actually going to be back in front of them again. So how do you stay memorable? And, and the thing that I'm trying to like beat over the heads of the two young guys that, that come onto our team is like, I can't tell you how often I get on the phone with someone who's like, Oh yeah, like someone did my deal. Like I can't remember their name. I don't know who they are. Like mm. they're, like brokers are literally notorious for never being memorable. Um, so I really focus on this a lot. And for me, I try to lean on my strengths which is that I genuinely have an interest in other human beings. Like I want to get to know who you are on a personal level. And I also really want to know what is driving what you're excited about. You know, like if you're like most of the companies that I'm working with are scaling uh, founding teams, right? Like I do work with tons of enterprises as well. Um, But the guys that are building businesses, they're super passionate. I shouldn't say guys, guys and girls are building businesses they're extremely passionate about what they're doing so if, if you can find a way to get personal with them on both levels like you know about whatever your life their life and then also um, whatever their journey is in, in, in a corporate sense you're way ahead and and how i try to do this is um through being human through being vulnerable and through finding opportunities to share of myself as a mechanism to getting other people to open up so I'm, I'm usually someone who's very comfortable leading with personal stories about myself. You know, like when I get the opportunity to meet somebody in person or I, I get them live in, in one way or another, I, I try to find a way to let them know who I am and, and, and have that be an opening to, you know, the start of a deeper relationship. And I don't think that a lot of people take that opportunity. So like, I'll, I'll give you a tangible example. Um, I did a deal with a company like, five years ago. And I, I admittedly actually didn't do a very good job of following up. But luckily I was memorable enough for one reason or another, or they just took the path of least resistance of calling me back. Um, but I did remember a lot about these people 
And I knew that one, you know, the one lady had three children and another one had recently just had a child. And when we got back on for the first time, I shared, I said, hey guys, it's you know so great to talk to you again. It's been so long. I don't know about you, but like so much of my life has changed. I'm a dad now. I've got a child that's two years old. I'm going through like so many amazing and so many challenging things. You know, and I, I use that, like I use that sort of being willingness to be more intimate and share of myself as a springboard to to either connecting or reconnecting with people. And I, I just think that you can't underestimate the power of that. So that that's sort of for me my my differentiating factor. And then beyond that, like you have to be looking for meaningful and valuable ways to connect with people on a business level, right? So why forward CBRE forward is an incredible way for us to do that, obviously, because it's it's something that we can do to create stickiness in between transactions where they don't want it to the point you made earlier, like there's probably like in a, in, a, in a market like Toronto, no more than 20% of the tenant base is active or or in the in the you know stages of getting close to being active, needing to deal with their lease. So, you know, four out of five, at least, don't give a shit about whatever market data you are sending their way, right? Like you have to have enough self-awareness to know that they don't care. And even, and then of the 20% that do care, they just want someone to solve their problems for them. They don't want to be like inundated with some email that's like a thesis paper on the market. Like they want to know that you know what you're doing and that you don't like that they don't have to think about it, you know? So I try to find like these other ways to get in front of people, either through strategic partnerships, through creating a Seabury forward platform, through getting really like connected into venture capital people and people in the you know corporate finance and um, you know Deloitte type of world. Like the bigger network I can have of people that know who I am, what I do, and like me, and then having those differentiating partnerships and platforms, like that's how I connect with people. I very, very infrequently and sending out market information to people when I'm trying to build a relationship with them. Unless I know for a fact that like it's pointed and, and is exactly what they need to hear. I think that's great, man. Um, a slight transition into um, so a question that I like to ask brokers and sometimes it lands and sometimes it, it doesn't really go anywhere. But thinking about what people that are going to open their first like standalone office. So if somebody's jumping out of a WeWork or uh, yeah. they were sitting in a buddy's office or a VC's office and they're going to go get, you know, their first adult office. Um, sometimes I ask like, what do they do wrong? But I guess maybe a better way to ask it would be like, how do you coach somebody through that process from start being like, hey, we need an office and finish being, we show up for work on day one? Yeah, I love the question. Um, so inevitably, these types of companies are in a reactive state of being, right? Like it's triggered by a fundraising exercise in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, once that happens, they need to solve that problem in a matter of months. And if they're early in their journey and they haven't started another business before, they often don't know how long time consuming and analog the process still is of leasing an office space, right? So what I the, the one of the main things I try to advise startup companies to do at the onset is like I say to them, like, if I'm ever in front of them and I have their ear, um, I say, look, like I know you don't give a shit about real estate right now. You have a million other things that you're focused on. 
if you just invested several hours of your time and took a, a meeting with me that was focused on me telling you what I would do to help you and go meet like three other people that have been literally blasting your inbox for the last six months, just pick three of them that you think are like half decent and just spend one afternoon of your time interviewing those people, establishing to the point that, that you made, you, you made that post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago where you're talking about like at the end of the day, we all have access to pretty much the same information. I'll, I'll challenge you to say that in, in really tight markets like Toronto, <coughs> excuse me, getting over cold. Um, in really tight markets like Toronto, the relationships that brokers have on the landlord side and even with their other competitors, the ones who are at the top of that sort of pyramid, they will get access to more off-market information than anybody else. And landlords will want to do deals with those brokers more than anybody else because they'll know that the chances of, of a clean and successful outcome are more likely than if they deal with some shyster broker. Mm-hmm. So that can be a huge value add, even when most of the market information is pretty much always the same. Um, but yeah, if, if you just spend that time and pick the person that you like, pick the person that you trust, like you're going to save yourself so many headaches uh, at a later stage because inevitably what ends up happening is these companies are in a scarcity mindset. They need space in a short amount of time. They're Past experiences are a lot of the time driven by their experience with a residential agent. They don't trust the agents. They've been working in non-exclusive arrangements, right? And they get five brokers running around for them all with a very, very loose relationship. And they think somehow that's going to do them a better service by, you know, because in their mind, they don't want to miss an option, right? But what they don't realize is to the point you made is most of it's pretty much available to everybody. And by picking five people, that you have a loose relationship with, you're basically guaranteeing that every time you're in a space, that broker is going to try and push that space right down your throat because they are afraid that if they don't do that, they're not going to make a fee. So mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to have the kind of relationship that's going to get you the advice that you need to get the right deal. And you really need to think more along the lines of like, who's the partner that I want to be with for the next two, three, four office deals that I'm going to do? Because Real estate doesn't align with people's business needs at all. Like they're going to do a three-year lease because they have to, because the market's going to force them to. And within 12 to 18 months, they're going to grow out of it. So like, don't you want to be with someone that you already know and trust that can just solve that problem for you? Like when you're back at the table again? So yep. that's kind of my, my thoughts on that. What about, um, we've got a couple minutes left here. Things like... Um you know, headcount forecast, like a little bit more in the weeds on how to think about different space options? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question too. So I was actually just with a a scaling company. Currently, they're 45 people. They're going to be 65 people by the end of this year. And if everything goes according to plan, partway through next year, they might be 100. So it's a very dynamic problem to solve for, right? So usually what I suggest to these companies is taking a three-pronged strategy to looking at space. Like number one is always going to be a fully fitted out or as close to fitted out sublet as you can possibly get that has a lease term that's as flexible as possible. Um, And in an ideal world, if you can find a gem that's bigger than what you need, but at a price point that might be comparable to... um, spaces that might be smaller that you're considering, 
I would usually advise the company to take that larger space because I find that these companies are either, and more often in, in cities like Toronto right now, they're outgrowing it way before the lease term expires, but they're usually not staying flat. Like they're either like kind of going the wrong direction or going the right direction. So if you've got enough confidence that you're going in the right direction, I really advise them to take that larger space. Um, behind the sublet scenario, which is always the best because it's, it's going to be the most cost-effective uh, option, is turning to co-working providers. Um, most of these companies don't want to be in an, a true co-working space. They don't want to be in a space that they're sharing the floor with, with um, other tenants for cultural reasons, privacy reasons, you know, productivity reasons, all kinds of stuff. Also, when when companies raise around, they've probably already, like you said, been in these these co-working spaces and they need to show their staff that like shit's serious. Mm-hmm. They can't just move, they can't graduate to another co-working company, right? So every market's probably got some local players. And then of course there's the bigger ones like Breather and Hotel and, and others. Um, I obviously advise them to be looking at those options, but they are very expensive in a lot of cases. Um, but I'm noticing some local players popping up in Toronto that are able to do things on a more cost-effective basis than some of the bigger players like Notel or WeWork, uh, et cetera. So I, I say that number two. And then number three is direct space with a landlord that you might have to lease longer term. And you know that's really your backup, but like you don't want to have to do that. Um, but just to go back to the specifics of your question, like how do you manage the, the projections of headcount? it's not really something that you can get perfectly right, unfortunately. So you just need to try to find the space that's within the price parameters that you want. And frankly, it's probably as big as it can be uh, under those price parameters. And then make sure that that space is in a location and has enough of a quality build out in place that you're confident that if your circumstances change, you can release it without a lot of downtime, right? So like, it's just really trying to pick the best possible space in the best possible location because ultimately you're going to have to sublet it again basically Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm kind of like floored with how uh i get i might have to get more canadians like how thoughtful and well-spoken you were that was super fun is there anything you want to sneak in in the last minute or two before i feel like we could go another hour and maybe we can some (laughs) other time but um no, I, I mean, I think I'm good. I would I would love it if um, any Canadians listening wanted to check out CBRE Forward and, and wanted to check out um, how they can get involved. And frankly, any brokers in the U.S. that are part of CBRE, if you're listening, give me a shout about CBRE Forward because I think that we should look at expanding that platform into the U.S. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate you jumping on. That was a blast. Yeah, me too. I'm sorry I was late too. Uh, No problem, buddy. No problem. Thanks. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Cool.